Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to tonight's panel discussion at the Commonwealth Club, entitled Food and Health from the Ground Up, moderated by Ben Thomas, the Farm to Market Director for CAF, the Community Alliance for Family Farms. He is joined by a panel of California leaders who are working hard to improve the health of our food systems. I'm Kathy Curtis, chair of the Food Matters Forum and the host of tonight's program. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to the audience here and our listening audience. You can find all the upcoming Commonwealth Club events and recordings of the programs at commonwealthclub.org. Now it is my pleasure to introduce Ben Thomas. Ben provides direction and support for the farm-to-market team to develop and deliver programs to increase local market access for small to mid-scale California family farmers and help ensure that the food that they produce is available to local communities, including schools, hospitals, and universities. Ben brings 10 years of experience in sustainable purchasing and believes that supporting farmers and farm workers is key to a just and resilient food system. Please help me in welcoming Ben. (laughs) Good evening, everybody. It is an incredible honor to be here. And I just want to start out by saying that not only to be here in the Commonwealth Club and with its incredible and impactful history, um, but also to be sitting here not only in front of you and and to any listeners that we might have tonight or following this uh, evening, but to be here with a group of panelists that I'm uh, incredibly honored to be sitting with and incredibly honored to be able to um, work with you tonight to have a really productive discussion and bring out the stories of the incredibly important work that they're doing. Um, who, just to do a, a quick show of hands, um, who here has a background in uh, farming or any family that has, or has any family who has a background in farming? Okay, so that's about half the room. And who here has a background in food services? Have you ever done any kind of food service work? I know for a lot of this generation, it's over a quarter of people that have worked in food services, and I think a lot of us start out that way too. Um, But in this evening session, we're going to delve a lot deeper into the, potem- the, the impact of both uh, the sourcing and impact on the farmers and the producers, and also the um, impact on food access and on food quality for students and for families and for um, people that are eating in hospitals. And so with that, uh, CAF it just as a little bit of a background, it's a 40-year-old organization that focuses on advocacy and on-the-ground programs to help farmers uh, and communities build more resilient and sustainable environments and economies. Um, we work, as the bio said, to help small to mid-scale farmers in the farm-to-market program be able to increase their market access. And so we have a group here tonight that we work together in partnership. We work together um, as practitioners, advocates, uh, medical experts, authors, um, really a dynamic panel for you that we're really happy to share tonight. Um, so with that, the uh, we'll start with an introduction. We'll have each of our panelists introduce themselves with an opening question. Um, we'll have... 10 minutes of predetermined question and answers. And as soon as you all feel inspired at the 
uh, end of each of our responses, please feel free to put your hands up. Um, I'll try to keep looking around and make sure that I can see the whole room and then let us know. And then you'll be able to ask your own questions. And if we don't have any in between, we've got a long list that we can take up the whole hour with if we need to. Um, but we really want to make this as uh, discussion oriented and informal in that way as possible. Um, with that, we will start out um, asking our panelists, and maybe we could start with Dr. Miller and just go down the row here. Um, if you could tell us your name, role, and organization. And the opening question is, uh, we're going to try to jump right into the exciting stuff here, is uh, how would you describe what is happening right now in the evolution of farm to school, farm to hospital, and the surrounding uh, movement for food systems change, and the role that you and your organization has in doing that? Okay. Uh, good evening, and thank you so much for having me. I'm a family physician by training, and I still spend a little bit of my week uh, in clinical medicine. Uh, but more and more, uh, as my career has evolved, I spend my time with farmers and ecologists and uh, people who are thinking about land and soil and food production. And uh, as I have evolved in my work as a physician, I have my thinking has really changed about where health happens. And uh, I have realized it is absolutely important for us to create uh, a healthy, just food system, literally from the soil up, uh, if we are all going to experience uh, good health. Um, and so I, my work has taken a number of different tacks. I actually am a science writer. I, I'm a contributing columnist for the Washington Post and often write about issues related to personal health and food and so on. Uh, I've written a couple books about uh, agriculture and food and health. Uh, I teach medical students and graduate students and actually run a project called Health from the Soil Up, which is, I guess, <laughs> the name of this uh, this meeting this evening, uh, where we teach people in healthcare uh, basically ecological literacy and how closely, um, ideally, medicine should be tied to ecology and to soil science, and we can talk more about that. And in terms of the question that Ben asked, uh, I think that there's incredibly exciting things happening, and you're going to hear from the folks who are actually doing it, which is not me, uh, this evening that are linking uh, um, farm to child, farm to school, farm to cafeteria, farm to healthcare, and that I think that actually that this movement is what is kind of setting a new pace for changing the way that we connect in our communities to agriculture. And so I, 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 what we're going to hear tonight is all incredibly important stuff, in my opinion. <laughs> thank you, and thank you for letting us borrow the name of the, <laughs> name of the session from Hi, uh, I'm Hope Sipola. I am co-owner of Fiery Ginger Farm in West Sacramento. We are, myself and my business partner, Shane, um, have been farming together uh, for about five years now. Um, we both have an education background. Um, and so what's unique about our farm is that Shane was a teacher for 15 years, and I worked in school gardens and managed a school farm. 
Um, and the location of our farm is actually owned by Washington Unified School District. Um, and it started out through an incubator program um, where we uh, leased from the Center for Land-Based Learning who helped us get on our feet by providing access to land with their partnership with the school district. Um, but just recently, we were able to sign a private lease with them and uh, move forward with their business. So it's a really exciting year this year. Um, the interesting part about our business is that we started with just a few core values, not really knowing where we were going, um, and a little bit of background in education. And we thought it would be cool to mix farming um, and bringing good food into school districts and also some ag education. And what better place to do it than on a farm location that's located right on a school site? Um, so we are one acre. Um, and we have just focused our role to be um, providing high-quality produce to schools and building those relationships, um, and also education in various ways, not just on our farm where kids come to the farm and learn about farming and where food comes from, um, but also going into schools and doing educational programs, teaching classes. We taught a whole series of a high school farm-to-fork class, um, which focused on things other than just where our food comes from. Um, it focused on soil health and science and um, a little bit of English standards and all sorts of things. So we try to bring in all of that education and meet uh, the school California state standards as, as, and to support the teachers and the work and they're doing in the classroom. Um, in addition to that, we work a lot with some programs like Rayleigh's Food to Families, Food for Families, and they help us in a way, and, and we support them by um, food access to those communities that don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, we have a program where they come in and purchase produce from us, and then it goes to kids' farmers markets at three, free kids' farmer markets at three local elementary schools in West Sacramento. Um, and we're trying to focus this year on nutrition education a little bit more and f some more food access in our local West Sacramento community. Um, and I think, you know, there's so many exciting things we've seen happen. Our business has grown, not with just the support from selling produce to the school districts, but also with educational opportunities. Um, and we feel really fortunate to be out there in the community working with kids hands-on, teaching them about food and where it comes from and um, all sorts of other things, science, English, all those things. So, Thank you. So I'm going to throw a bunch of peas at you, and I don't mean the vegetable, I mean <laughs> the letter. So my name's Paula and uh, Daniels, and I'm involved in public policy, and I believe in the power of procurement. <laughs> uh, by that word alone, you can tell I'm a wonk. Uh, who would use the word procurement when really you mean purchasing, which is actually the name of my organization. It's called the Center for Good Food Purchasing. Not a lovely name, but it says what it does. So we actually have a program <laughs> that works in public institutions. Uh, but we you know, seriously, we do use the power of purchasing um, to try and shift the market around food. So we have a very entrenched um, food economy in a certain type of food system that's very global. I think you all are probably here because you're familiar with some of the problems of it being a very large, highly consolidated, vertically integrated, um, profit-driven enterprise. It's food is, the system of food is 
basically an economic system. We have other natural resources that are regulated. Um, your water's regulated, air's regulated, you know, soil health, that sort of thing. But food and how food moves around is basically market-based. So we believe in five values, and these five values are embedded in our purchasing program. So it's support of local economies, support of environmentally sus- uh, sustainably produced food, support of food that is produced and processed and picked and served by fair labor, fairly treated labor, animal welfare, and nutritional health. So all five of those values are embedded in our program. So our program, the Good Food Purchasing Program, was something we developed um, when I was a senior advisor to Mayor Villaraigosa of Los Angeles. We developed it there. It was adopted by the city of L.A. and L.A. Unified School District. Um, And we're seeing big shifts already in a short amount of time. So what I'm seeing in terms of current is we have this program that we started in L.A., started seeing some changes. It became of interest to people around the country. So we turned it into this nonprofit group, Center for Good Food Purchasing, and have spread around the country now. So we're in 15 institutions, sorry, 15 cities, 32 institutions, and our program is evaluating a billion dollars worth of food purchasing at public institutions. So it's school districts, um, municipal um, institutions like recreation and parks departments and things like that throughout the country. We're in San Francisco, uh, started in L.A., but then uh, Oakland and San Francisco adopted it. We're in Chicago, New York, D.C., Boston, and a number of cities around the country. So what we're seeing is this kind of wonky thing of like how purchasing is being done by these major institutions can make a difference. LA Unified School District was $150 million worth of food. They started paying attention to our program. Yeah. And in one year, they went from less than 10% local sourcing of produce to an average of 60% local sourcing of produce. And that created, uh, that put $12 million into the local food economy and created 150 new jobs in food processing. So that's a start. These are all starts. And, and that's what we're you know, we're doing and spreading around the country is, is using those public dollars for public good. I'm Vince Coggan. I'm, I'm the school district. I'm the uh, <laughs> I'm the director of Natoma's Unified School District, which is north of Sacramento. It's a little suburb of Sacramento, and I'm responsible for ten thousand meals a day, between breakfast, lunch, supper, snack. Um, it's not rare for me to serve all the meals that kids would have throughout the whole entire day and then during winter break we'll serve winter food winter feeding and then summer we do summer feeding as well so that's what we do um in pictures you'll start seeing these group of people uh food service um staff who believe that we're we're not just serving food but we're in an education setting so we're in a as an education um person serving food we believe that we're in a business of teaching kids things they don't know they like yet and that's easy to do with math and science we just happen to do it with food so what that means is we'll come up with all these fun creative ways to try and get kids to eat kiwis eat blood oranges um like when they see quinoa for the first time or even seeing a kid eat tamale and they're eating the husk. I'm like, no, 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 this is how you eat a tamale. You have to unwrap it first. <laughs> um, I mean, little things like, not little things like that, but like having Banwood calf come out and they'll try persimmons for the first time. Um, these are all the things we do in addition to just serving food. 
Um, as a result, I, I get asked to speak to these at these type of events. Um, organizations like CAF, No Kid Hungry, Center for Eco Literacy, um, senators go, "Hey, would you want to do this?" And we just happen to have the opportunity to do them. Um, never trying to make a change per se, but in the mindset of teaching kids about food um, in an education setting. Hi, and I'm uh, Tracy Patterson. I also work on public policy. <laughs> I'm not going to have that many P's, but I guess my last name does too. Um, so I, I work in the realm of public policy, and specifically for the last six years, I've worked with an organization called the California Food Policy Advocates, where I led state legislative campaigns uh, aimed at increasing access uh, to healthy, affordable food for low-income Californians. Um, a lot of that is through the school food system, um, others through uh, federal nutrition programs like CalFresh. Um, and trying to make sure that we are using public t- policy as a tool um, to really equitably improve access and recognize that when we are setting a universal goal, like we want to have a goal that all people, all children can have good, healthy food at school, that the solutions to get everyone to that universal goal are different. And so I, in the landscape of California, I think a lot about farm to school and how that fits within schools. I think sometimes people uh, get really excited about the idea of food and sort of separate that out from the school systems that need to support and nurture the nutrition service departments and the funding, um, all of the resources that make it possible um, for school to reach kids and really support their learning, um, recognizing that food um, may be, you know, wanting a menu of options and choices for families that perhaps are more affluent, more used to being able to have choice. For some families, it's making sure, is my kid going to have food to get through the school day? I want to make sure that the school has breakfast, lunch, supper programs, and really recognizing the role that those play within a lot of California families, millions. Um, and so thinking about policy as the foundation, how does policy support the practice we want to see? So not trying to like micromanage the practice through policy, but using policy as a foundation and building block. So looking at federal policy that sets the grounds for all of these school nutrition programs and predominantly it it needs to adequately resource schools. So generally schools have about a dollar of food uh, to spend on food per meal. You get about $3 of federal reimbursement for that full meal. And that has to pay for staffing, for labor, for paperwork, for administration. And so really starting to parse out, like, is that enough to start with? And if that's not, what are the systems that build upon it? Um, what is the role that state policy plays to start to balance those levers? Um, what's the role of philanthropy and who actually has access to philanthropic dollars? Is that spreading across the state in a way that actually meets the need? Um, and I think a lot when you think about California and the Bay Area, um, public policy doesn't quite, uh, federal policy doesn't quite meet our needs here because the federal poverty lines don't match up with the cost of living here. So, you know, you think about a family of four. I don't know how many of you have kids. Um, a family of four in the Bay Area this year, um, if you make $48,000 a year as a family mm-hmm. of four, you make too much for even a reduced price meal. So you're considered by a national standard middle class. You don't need any help affording food. And we know that that's, that's not accurate. A family of four making $48,000 in the Bay Area is really struggling to even pay rent on that level. Um, and then I think of places in California like Bakersfield, which is, you know, the, the biggest agricultural um, region in the United States, has the highest level of food insecurity in the nation, not just California. And within a two-hour radius of Bakersfield, you can't find a single market match program 
to help match the dollars that people would spend at a farmer's market or things like that. And so how do we really start to untangle that and think about how we use policy as a tool to shift uh, public resources and behavior um, towards where it's needed most? To dig a little bit more into what your experiences in day-to-day look like, mm-hmm. can you tell us about uh, an experience or story that you've had recently um, that impacted or inspired your work? Yeah, I'll, I'll start <laughs> off. Um, so I was, a cafe- I was at a cafeteria, and we went out of our way to purchase blood oranges, local blood oranges, right? And beautiful and really ripe. And the kids cut into them, comparing them to traditional oranges, and go, "Ooh, it's rotten. I was like, what do you mean it's rotten? Look at this. They're like, it's rotten. It's red inside. I was like, no, 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 no. It's not rotten. That's how it's supposed to be. Try it. I was like, "Uh, it's like a fruit punch. They're like, really? It's fruit punch. And of course, they (laughs) ate it, thinking it was fruit punch. It tastes like fruit punch orange. And... Everyone started eating it. <laughs> um, what what that passed along to me is, okay, what if I wasn't there to intervene and say, no, it's not rotten. It's it's not bad. That's the way it's supposed to be. Try it. And for, for, for most of the kids, that was their first time eat, ever eating blood oranges. Um, so for me, the lesson learned from that is, we need to do, and I need to do, a better job um, educating kids about what they're eating. When I didn't do it well in school, <laughs> I didn't do well in school, they would take me out of a class and, and like, here, here's focus on math, extra help on math, extra help on reading. Um, we just don't do that with food as much. You know, if a kid doesn't like a specific type of food or they think it's weird, no one's going to take them out and go... Hey, this is let's. This is how you cook it. These are all different varieties of greens, citrus, etc. And I just thought of like how that little intervention changed, and that changed the perception of blood oranges for those kids. Thanks, Vince. And you didn't have to tell them it wasn't really blood. It was just, yeah, it wasn't really, <laughs> it was, it was just fruit punch. Does anyone else have any stories of any inspiring stories offhand that they want to share? I actually have one that happened uh, a month or two ago. I don't know if this is inspiring or not, but um, (laughs) I spend a lot of time uh, visiting farms. And early on in the projects I did, it was really kind of more the idealistic, beautiful, organic six to ten acre farms. And that's a lot of the... And, and they are still my favorite farms to visit. But uh, but this was a, a conventional dairy operation in the Central Valley um, where the cows themselves are actually not even on pasture. They're kept under sheds and so on. But it's a young farmer who's taken over the operation from his family and is trying to actually change things after generations of them being quite conventional. Most of the milk from this goes into the California co-op and ends up in school lunch. And I walked into this dairy and had this immediate visceral negative reaction. Um, Everything was pristine. The cows looked, you know, calm and happy. But I have this idea of what 
happy cows are supposed to look like and they're supposed to be on grass and uh, there's supposed to be other things going on on the farm. And I think many of you probably <laughs> share this image. And I think we could arguably say in terms of true soil health, cow health, human health, that is the ideal. But I walked onto the into this dairy and I started to spend some time there and then started to realize some things. Like, first of all, I realized that uh, the fields surrounding the dairy actually were all cover cropped. So this farmer had started to do something that a very small percentage of California farms are doing at this point, where he's growing his feed in a more regenerative way and trying to grow crops in the winter to actually feed the soil and uh, build more soil health. And that's a new thing for this farm. And then I noticed that all the cows had these weird little, like, computer chips on their ears. And I said, what's that for? And he said, well, actually, it's this new technology that's connected to my iPhone. And it is helping me detect mastitis and uvitis, um, you know, endometrial infections hmm. in my cows five to six days earlier than I used to with my old diagnostics. And I have cut down my use of antibiotics by about 90%, which is huge, both in terms of, as you can imagine, for antibiotic resistance and all of our health, but it also means that those cows, when cows are given antibiotics, even in a conventional operation, they need to be taken out of production and, you know, it's, it's loss of money for the farmer and so on. And then I started to look at the feed that was going on and realized that a lot of the feed that was coming into this operation was actually like recycled almond hulls that were, you know, he was using other things. Arguably, are they good or bad for cows? I don't know, but he was using other resources from the Central Valley. And this is food that's going to feed school kids. Now, on one level, I would love if all of California school kids could get milk from beautiful, dancing, pastured <laughs> cows and chickens and so on. But it started to change my mindset in this sort of dichotomy, this binary way of thinking <laughs> of good, bad, organic, conventional. Um, and I started to see that there is a continuum and a nuance that we don't really get here on the coast. And um, that I need to understand better. And I'm just sharing that. So I don't know if that's uh, inspiring or not, but <laughs> or if you guys have opinions about that or are horrified that I was inspired. <laughs> well, you're making me think about I, when Ben asked the question, I thought inspired. I tend to think more about here's a problem. I need to solve right. it. So everything I thought of was a problem that but that I think we might have a solution for. But you made me think about the movie, The Biggest Little Farm, I think it's called. Which yeah. Is very sweet. So I, I won't say any more about it. Just I'll just recommend it. But it's a, a, a young couple's journey. They were young to me. A young couple's <laughs> journey uh, toward making a kind of devastated farm area into very vibrant, um, regenerative farm. And all the problems they ran into, but how they eventually got to that. But that, you know, that's what we're trying to solve for in our program is to create markets for people like that. People that are doing that kind of work along a continuum to have markets to sell into school districts and keep them thriving. Should I talk about the problem I was thinking about there? I mean, there's one thing that felt like a call to action. I mean, you can just stop me if it seems too down. <laughs> just go, oh, next. I'm totally good with that. I am. 
But I'm from Hawaii originally, and the hurricanes are moving a whole lot closer to Hawaii. And last year, this really stunned me. Uh, it's because of climate change. So it's, the currents are moving differently. The winds are behaving differently. So hurricanes usually went south of Hawaii. Now they're just getting closer and closer and closer. So my sisters and my mom live in Hawaii, and, and um, they were ordered to shelter in place for two weeks. And the thing about Hawaii, and the reason I bring it up in this context, is it's like island earth you know i'm old enough to remember buckminster fuller operating planet for spaceship earth but you look at earth as kind of a ship um, in the middle of an ocean uh, uh, hawaii an island in an ocean it's the most remote population in the world they used to be able to feed themselves um sufficiently and with an estimated similar size population to today it's a little bit more by two hundred thousand or so but a lot of people lived in hawaii pre-contact and they had a thriving, regenerative food system. But they were taken over by monoculture cropping sugar. And now all that land is used differently and is mostly developed. So there's very little agricultural production there. They have 5% local food. So when people are ordered to shelter in place, they're going to get food from stores. Um, the thinking had been that um, if the cargo ships were ordered a long time ago, people were saying this, the cargo ships were ordered away from Hawaii, didn't come to Hawaii. Hawaii would be out of food in a week. This is the story of our global food system. We're basically doing that to our planet, right? So Hawaii is an example of that. And people go, oh, well, the cargo ships will always come to Hawaii. Well, when the hurricane started getting close to Hawaii, the governor ordered the cargo ships away to stay away. So this reality became very close. You know, so my sister goes to the store, like the shelves are empty. All the spam went first, right? No one likes spam. <laughs> She's a vegetarian, so it wasn't really good for her. I bring that up because that just really reinforced in me the idea that we need to localize our food economies and have a pretty strong sense of uh, what we can do in our region to to grow and support um, our, our our crops. I mean, our population. And I think of it as you know the way we look at renewable energy. We have a strong percent of renewable energy. I know in LA, we well, we had 20% by 2020, but California has 100% by 2045. Let's say we pick some range somewhere in there where we have X percent is not only local, but sustainably grown in a region. We have a region commit to that. You can start supporting that local economy. Hawaii's trying to do that. They have a 30% by 2030. And I think that's something we can think about here in California because it's climate responsive, right? You, you can grow, you can have those shorter, um, uh, logistic chains that can get the food to you, but you also are growing things that are more responsive to your area. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Let's build on that and continue a question for you, Paul. So with Center for Good Food Purchasing's approach has been um, profoundly illuminating of the potential of focusing on really major anchors in terms of municipalities and uh, schools. And so uh, it's it's been an ongoing building movement around utilizing and leveraging these community uh, institutions to be able to create different social 
and economic shifts. But to start with the biggest and most complex is audacious to say the least. Um, <laughs> you've probably heard less flattering things about, I mean, that's starting with LA Unified is crazy. That's, yeah. that's, that's, you know, and starting Chicago public schools. It's the second biggest Oakland school district Unified. in the country. Yeah. LA Unified. And, we serve 750,000 mm-hmm. meals a day there. <laughs> and you're talking so. Boston, um, Austin, Chicago, San Francisco. These are major, major metropolitan areas and areas that are the, within the most complex social institutions within them, the, the city governments and the school governments. Um, so with that, what what have you learned and what's next in that expansion? And mm-hmm. I think it probably will reflect some of what you were saying about the Hawaii goal. Yeah, along the lines of having regional goals, um, a lot of what we're looking toward now is trying to create a good food region model and see if you can have um, a number of anchor institutions within a region commit to these percentage goals. Or if they committed to our program, they don't have to commit to our program, but some program like that. But so if they committed to ours, for example, they'd be committing to, um, they're going to hit the the rating level we have. So they're going to hit a baseline in purchasing food that supports a local economy's environmental sustainability, fair labor, and all of that. So if you have one uh, institution doing that, that's great. I told you the example for LA Unified School District. But what if every major institution did that? What if all the school districts, private, public, all of them, yeah. the hospitals, the universities, um, the jails, they serve a lot of food too. What if they all combined committed? What if the municipal leader, the mayor, the board of supervisors sort of oversaw that and dis- and pulled that together and said, like we've done with renewable energy, all right, our region is going to commit to these goals. And then you could also use that to, to create this certainty in the market for producers. Like if you know that you can be selling to a school district that has longer term contracts and high volume, it starts keeping them in business, which is part of the idea. You start getting more um, acreage in organic or sustainably produced food. You start building up wages. You can start creating um, business development, economic development along that supply chain when you have those coordinated goals. So that's what we're working toward. Um, Is that audacious enough? <laughs> I I think so. I th- what do you all think? <laughs> audacious? Do you like it? <laughs> I I love it, but I wonder what it what will happen. That is a really good question. I mean, can we actually shift what we are growing in this country by changing procurement patterns? And that's the that's the million dollar that's the billion dollar question. Um, you know, right now. Half of what we grow in the U.S. is, you know, corn and soy and a lot of that's for animals and cars. Um, and will that change? Well, I see it change institution by institution, right? So an example I can tell you from kind of around this area, Davis, um, and you may see mm-hmm. it in your institution as well. So maybe you can add sure. to this after I mention this example. So someone, uh, Santana Santana Diaz runs the UC Davis health system, and he's already made a change in the local environment based on making his commitment to local environmentally sustainably produced food. An example is an aquaculture farm, McFarland Spring Trout, that mostly sells to white tablecloth restaurants, which is a small niche market, and they have to have a certain dollar price on it to make it work. So Santana Diaz has started uh, contracts with him, and it's kept his um, McFarland Spring Trouts in business. He's able to scale up operations um, by having that commitment from the UC Davis health system. Multiply that out. 
you start, you know, keeping these in business, you, you, you don't see the change immediately. This is not a turnkey operation, but you start seeing the change. Again, I want to analogize this to renewable energy. In the 70s, solar power was like just an idea in Jimmy Carter's eye, right? It just was something he started trying to do. But when you started making in the 21st century, when we started making these commitments to renewable energy, solar power is now a multi-billion dollar market. It's worldwide. It's making a difference. So you have to have those steady commitments just to keep up the commitment to it and keep the supply chains going. And I think we will see a difference. I don't think it'll be the entire system, yeah. but let's say we do 30%. That's a good difference i'm i'm aiming for that for now yeah uh, what are you saying in the tomas like the kids know they're farmers they go where's hope and chain because hope and chain came out and they did lessons and <laughs> hope and chain did this dance with them and they remember that dance the flossy dance if you know what that is <laughs> then that's a dance um so three four years ago uh you were just selling to washington even though you were at washington unified now we go, I want that. And what percentage are we buying from you of your land? Uh, all of our cut leaf lots. I'm like, we'll, we'll happily take it from you guys and, and other school districts. I'm not going to mention them. They're like, we want it too. I'm like, hold up, guys. I, me and Hope have this special thing going. <laughs> um, so but what makes, me. what makes, and the person that introduced us was Ben. So, I mean, all coming full circle. Um, and then what makes like fiery ginger start, stand out is, um, you know, there's, there's this, there's these group of educators who want to educate people about farming and, and agriculture and they're just farmers and to cross over in that Venn diagram, there's a very few and select. And that's why we partner with you guys. I mean, the picture up there, that's kids at your farm taking a field trip. You know, I, I think most of the farmers out here, if you go, Hey, would you want a bunch of kids in your, in your farm? No, because of these are the 28 reasons why not where you guys are like, here's the two reasons why I think it, it might work. And, Let's see what what could happen, <laughs> right? <laughs> and to continue that with hope, um, I think I have a two part question for you. You well, many of the farms that we work with, especially smaller farms, have a portion of their sales as part of their business plan that they direct towards school districts as a customer that's between a small direct customer and a wholesale market. So a little bit better price point and more flexibility than a, a wholesale market, but a little bit um, uh, less work on the marketing side uh, than a direct relationship and a little bit less cost of sales. And you have a unique, you're especially unique in that you build your production around working with schools. Yeah. Um, and I just, so the, the two part question being one, what some of what goes into that planning and what's come out of it. And then two, do you think that that's a model that's scalable to maybe not, uh, an entire farm industry, but you're one of the only farms that we know of that operates in this way. And is it more scalable than that? Do you think in other areas? Um, yeah, everyone, told us that they thought we were silly because our marketing goal was to essentially pre-sell whatever we grow. Because we're small, we have to produce things quickly and have them sold in a hurry um, in order 
to keep to stay in business basically so school districts like ben said are um we call them uh wholesale plus customers because they're a little bit more than wholesale but they can take large quantities so we sell to five different school districts right now and we're looking at adding two more this year so that'll be seven it's about 90 percent of our business um it's it's pretty much all of our business um and so is it scalable uh yes um but i think the things that we've done that have made it successful for us is uh, when we first started working with Natomas, for example, we sell a tri-color leaf lettuce where um, some schools we approached were like, kids will not eat red lettuce. (laughs) They just won't do it. So what we did is we went to Natomas and we said, we have this really beautiful cut leaf product. We'd love to give it to you. There's no processing for you. We think it's great for schools. It lasts a long time. It's high quality and it's tri-color and it's really beautiful. And we would love to come sample that with the kids. So I think the key to working with schools and getting buy-in and getting the kids to like it and eat it and getting the school districts to want it is to be available and to come and to talk to the kids and to sample it with the kids and to talk to them about where it comes from and all of those things. So we've also invested a lot of time in those sorts of activities to make it happen. But I think that um, I think that it can be done. I mean, we're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And why, why the tricolored leaf lettuce? Don't um, you want to grow and sell that one? So Shane and I, you know, both, both worked for schools and we just saw this iceberg lettuce on the salad bars and we were, and I have two teenagers at home and I would look at their salad bars and I'm like, ah, they just, they lack color. They don't look fresh. That doesn't look inviting. Of course I wouldn't want to try it as a kid if I looked at it and saw that. So I thought, we need to get them something different. And also this particular variety lasts a long time. So it's good for schools. They can keep it for long periods of time and it's still great. Um, but we just wanted to try something different. So we do that a lot of, with a lot of things, uh, turnips, we've sold rat. We have several schools who buy radishes from us for their salad bar. And people said, Oh, that can't be done because kids don't eat radishes. But if you Grow them in the winter. There they are. Those are the French breakfast Cute radishes. radish photo. <laughs> yeah. If you grow them in the winter, they're sweet and not spicy, and kids love them. Mm. Um, and we're trying to pair that with some of our nutrition education. So, like, talk to them about the different things different produce has that are good for you and all those sorts of things. So, trying to get different things into the school districts. Thank you. Um, so, I'm, I want to ask Tracy a question, and then we'll open it up to... The group, if anyone has any questions, and if not, we have more prepared as well. Um, I wanted to ask Tracy. I've been had the uh, fortune, both in a policy advocacy support role and and in school working with schools and hosp- uh, with schools and farmers. Seen a lot of the work that you've done with um, California food policy advocates, and it's really dynamic in that it's state level iterative multi-year very strate- layered strategic policy um that's very we'll say cumulative and it's uh snowballing in its effect um but you found that in an equitable community outreach approach mm-hmm. which is for something like school food it really um incredibly (laughs) there's a question from the audience (laughs) (laughs) siri could probably tell us just um, so can you tell us more about that and and how that uh, process has, has worked for you yeah um so i think particularly when i think about school food um i think there are 
lots and lots of what you could call stakeholders, which in some ways just like people with opinions. <laughs> um, and there's lots of people who have opinions about school food. Um, and I think that what's really critical is making room for all of those things. It's fine to have a whole realm of stakeholders who have opinions. But at the end of the day, who are the actual users and human beings that eat the food, rely on the food, um, our parents of children who eat the food, um, make the food, who are the, yeah. the real people like in the mud, <laughs> who's engaging, who, you know, my kids, um, are, I also have two kids, like hearing about the unripe fruit on the line that your kid won't eat like that, that becomes really concrete when it's your own child um, and hearing what the actual concerns are from families on the ground. Like when you really go and, and go out and talk to families and talk to mothers in Fresno and talk to teens in San Diego or talk to communities in um, Watsonville, which is all places where, where I was doing policy development engagement and focus groups. Um, the things you hear about are much more, uh, I don't know. On a human level, you hear moms who tell you, I just wish they wouldn't give my kids spoiled milk. You hear like, I just, I've, I'm getting these bills and I can't afford to pay for them. I don't qualify for a free meal, but like, I can't, I just can't pack it every day. I work swing shift and I can't control my schedule. And so when you really start to parse out, like, who are the families? Who are the kids? Who are the people making the food? Because honestly, a lot of the line workers um, in the cafeteria and schools, they qualify for free and reduced price meals too. And I think that it's thinking about, like, when I think about food, the reason I care about food, honestly, is because I think as humans, it's how we show care and love like at the base level. And I think there's the nutrients, there's the health, there's all those things. I have a public health background. I really do care about that stuff. But like <laughs> at the core of it, it's how you show you care. And so how ultimately are we setting up a system where we show kids that we care and like truly and honestly think what that, what that means and what we have to set up as a system to support that. Because, you know, I will tell you, I've never heard a parent say, I, a parent other than maybe one who doesn't regularly rely on school food. <laughs> I've never heard them say, I want to make sure that the school meals are 100% organic, or I want to make sure that the school meals are certified this or that. They want to know that their kid is going to eat the food and feel cared and get through the day. Um, and so thinking about those really real concerns and honoring that and trying to make sure that like, as the stakeholders and advocates and policymakers, we're not layering our values and going from there, but like continuing to ground truth it in what people really and truly want and need and making sure we're taking care of those basics before we skip ahead. Because if we do that, then we're honestly just replicating the inequity and inequality we see in society right now. And I think that we're at a point where like, mm -hmm. we are so othering people. <laughs> we are so separate in spheres of our life where there's plenty of people who have never sat, like stepped foot in a public school or know what that looks like. Um, as a parent, you know, I've had sat in PTA meetings where a mom will come in and say, oh, the school food is gross. Let's fire them and get a company. I've heard of a catering company. And my my spouse is a public school teacher, so I'm like, oh God, no! Like that's <laughs> that's the public school employees. Like you're really just devaluing everything, and try, instead of trying to fix um, the system. And so, in working with policy development, I think it's it's a lot of holding the space for everybody's concerns and really trying to 
create policy and, and knowing enough about like the realistic vehicles to do it. So we could say, I want a free organic meal for every kid in California. And that's a wonderful vision. I agree with that vision. But like, what does that take? And what are the systems that are already there that we could support to get closer to that goal? Um, and so like I've worked on state policy. Um, there's this, you know, you have to dive through the wonky stuff to get what people are really telling you they need. And so what we hear from youth, what we hear from kids is um, with young kids, they just want it to taste good. <laughs> they want to know that it tastes good. With teenagers, with middle schoolers, it gets really into peer pressure and stigma. And middle school kids who need the free meal do not want to line up for the free meal if they know in school that's the meal for the free kids. Um, you know, And there's different names for it in different school districts. You know, Some kids will call it the free free. Some kids are like the free lunch. In schools in Southern California, they don't have enough seating room for the kids to get free lunch. So kids with packed lunch sit outside and the kids who get free lunch sit inside. Like there are practices that happen that really stigmatize and separate our kids. And so how do we correct for that first? Um, and so I think, you know, there's always this debate of like, is it the food quality? Um, is it access? And I say it's both. Um, but my approach is always access first, because I think if you focus on the quality without saying, who are we shutting out? By building this system that way, I think we just build a more broken system. So I think um, my approach with public policy has always been to really think like the things that people are telling me, the everyday things, how do we work with the systems to address their needs and concerns? And we can deal with the, you know, everybody else's opinions. <laughs> we can get there and we can shape it um, to the ideal. But I think it's really digging in with like, how do we really think about doing this at a volume in the state of California? We have over 6 million kids in public schools. Um, we worked on uh, a policy with a senator from uh, Marin up to the, the North Coast, Senator McGuire, a few years ago um, to make universally free meals, which is done through a federal program, um, to make that mandated in all of the schools that are high poverty enough to get the maximum federal dollar from that. So like, we're, we're going to have a mandate, we're going to say you have to do this, but it's really only in the schools where you're going to get fiscal support. And in some of the schools that Ben was working with, that brought in, I think you said in Sac City, they started getting $70,000 more revenue a month. Mm -hmm. That's how you support a farm to school program. <laughs> like it, it's using the building blocks that can leverage the most resources um, to address the everyday needs that people are telling you that they, they need and want, but might not have the power access to be the squeaky wheel in the system to get it. I work with Twin Rivers Unified School District in Northern Sacramento, and uh, they were able to shift to full uh, community eligibility provision and free school food for all of their students following this because of the direct certification law that Tracy worked to pass. And they, and I'm, I was, this is in, this is before the end of the school year. So it was like the technically the end of school year is end, end of June by business standards. And this would have been in like April. Um, but they were at a 520,000 meals additionally served this year because of that program. So these are huge, huge shifts. And that's one of 4,000 school sites that were able to gain CEP and free lunch this year. Um, and I just want to say one more thing and then we'll go to go to our audience. But um, we are, we're also partnering with Edible Schoolyard on the 100% free and organic school food pledge for farmers and school children. And it's interesting and I'm really grateful to be a in a partnership that's really uh, highly prioritizing and concentrated on holding that space and trying to have, uh, to work through community input and take a slower approach to the actual implementation and modularize it so you can pick it up where you you can pick up the resources where you're at and it's not 
forcing any any system um but it is really 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 challenging to do that effectively and so just um actually have on asana a call with you i'm reaching out to you for a call to discuss it more (laughs) specifically so i'm glad you said that um but yeah please in the 1980s i was living at green gulch organic farm opens up to Muir beach and uh, there were no tracks here on Embarcadero at the time. And we would have, with other farmers, uh, organic food right in, in front of where the tracks are in front of, and the ferry building hadn't gone under construction yet. So wow. I, th- I think as a result of that, I think now there are farmers markets on most neighborhoods around here, and I have no idea, probably even in other suburbs too. So I think that is an introduction pretty much to people eating organic food or farmers bringing food, and they're used to eating them. So I think that's made a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, definitely the growth in farmers markets and in support for farmers in the past 15 years has been profound is what you're doing any of you're doing uh, addressing the issue of food raise, waste there was a study just published this week and department of agriculture put it out about a third of the food that's produced particularly in california is is wasted um how does this play in our program is um it's to explain it in a short version, it works the way LEED certification works for buildings in school districts. So we have a rubric with rating system and points and performance goals that schools can uh, strive toward. And food waste, addressing food waste is a component of it. So we award points in our rating for school districts or other public agencies to be managing food waste uh, better. So you're talking about agricultural waste? Okay. Because there's a lot of different levels yeah, it where happens it happens all along the food yeah. chain. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you that I know of, and I'm I'm interested in using agricultural waste. Um, I'm, we're not doing it ourselves, but it's something I'm tracking. Agricultural waste, as well as post-consumer uh, organic food waste, to create livestock feed. Um, so there's a lot of those sorts of programs going on and out there. But so maybe yeah, you, we you know. uh, on our farm in particular, uh, there's really honestly not much waste because most of it is sold. Um, but anything that is waste or unsaleable or otherwise, we um, compost it and we, it goes back into the soil. Or um, we have some FFA animals out there, so the pigs and the lambs and the chickens all get to eat it too. So it's repurposed. I think, like on a statewide basis, there's also um, there's a state tax incentive program for something called Cal Food, um, which is uh, gives farmers tax credits to donate excess produce to food banks. Um, which I think, you know, I would promote as one of a, a, the better strategies. I think you start you start to see people sort of commodifying ugly produce. I would rather see that given away, <laughs> if possible. Um, and I think, you know, trying to figure out how to bolster that so that there's the infrastructure to support it, because I think. Um, you know, working in school food and working in policy, I think every year I would have at least five legislative staff call me to say, we should pass a law so that the school food waste is fed to people. And I was like, well, one, you don't need a law. <laughs> you can do that now. There's no law <laughs> against it. And two, it's not a matter of policy. It's a matter of 
the cost yeah. and the infrastructure? And do you really want to drive refrigerated trucks around to pick up the excess of meals that kids didn't want to eat? And who are you giving that to? Like, there's all those pieces. And so I think when you're looking at the, like, what's gone fallow, I think there are things in, like, federal agricultural policy that we need to look at of why are farmers um, going fallow or, you know, how does the subsidy system work to sometimes encourage farmers to let food um, go because of sort of incentives and uh, subsidies. But then on that basis, how can we restructure it so that that excess food does um, get to people for a donation in a state they actually want to eat? <laughs> most of the waste, though, is as post-consumer. Yeah. That's where most of the waste is. And I'll just say on the topic that we're on, some of the nutritional, the dietary guidelines really foster waste. Like one is a requirement that milk be served and the students are not always consuming the milk and they, the, the school district won't get reimbursed. You're going to correct me if I say something wrong, but mm-hmm. my understanding is they don't get reimbursed <laughs> unless the students take it. So the students will take a carton of milk, have a little bit and throw it out. So there are yeah. some school districts that are serving milk, not in containers, but so you can pour it and put it in a glass so it's not wasted as much. So there's a lot of practices like that that are, I see a lot of good yeah. happening in that area. Thank you all very much for your work and all your successes, and all of it's been inspiring to me. Uh, one of the things I learned that I really had no idea about was the idea of school serving supper. Could you say a few more words about serving Supper, I was familiar with lunch and breakfast. Yeah, so there is this program, uh, CACFP, Child and Adult Care Food Program, where um, any school that qualifies on free and reduced, um, we're allowed to give them a compliant supper meal, much like much like a school food meal. Um, so f- for kids that have after-school activities, uh, for kids that play sports, or just have homework club, or just want to hang around campus after school. It's another avenue for us to give them that type of meal. I think what's unique this year, as we try and grow our program, is um, we're expanding our supper program in Sacramento to serve City of Sacramento and the libraries as well. So if the kids want to go out and do an after-school program at the city um, city program and or a library, they'll get to eat there. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I'll add that I love about the supper program, I'm I'm a huge proponent of making school food free to everyone so that it doesn't separate kids out into these categories that don't line up with levels of need. And supper is one of those programs where you, you are eligible as a site. So if the school can offer it, it's offered free to all of the students who are in that program. So um, it's one of the one of the programs I really like in terms of schools yeah. can customize it. A lot of schools serve it as like a super snack because, you know, schools end around three. You don't supper is not really a dinner in that in that concept. But I've also um, talked with other schools and, and gone and visited schools, particularly like in the Bay Area, more in um, some of the excerpts where a lot of parents have really long commutes and, you know, are leaving for work at six in the morning, coming back at eight or nine at night. And in some of those school districts, they'll switch it and serve a meal at like six or seven when parents are about to pick up their kids from an after-school program so that that's like one less piece of stress at the end of the day. I'd like to finish with um, one last question for Daphne and for Dr. Miller. And and, in public, I don't know. It's, you know, I grew up in northern New York where I didn't even know adults had first names in California where it's all tell everyone. So then when you have like people that have a lot of education, I wonder what time sometimes where to fit in. Um, so, uh, we've seen a lot of very, very similar programs to in schools 
to what we've talked about in schools today and hospitals. Um, and in addition, we've see, we have the growth of prescription programs, clinics offering fresh fruits and vegetables and education and how to cook them to patients who can uh, gain from that. We have um, staff and guest food service being improved for within the farm to hospital lens, patient meals being improved and addressed. But there's a much broader, more holistic uh, interaction between our food and our health, and it seems like you bridge that gap both from the on the healthcare side and on the agriculture side. And so, I just wanted to ask you what you think the next um, iteration will be to complete that and to make a to create a more holistic approach that healthcare can interact with people's eating and and agriculture and vice versa. Well, I actually think it's exactly what these leaders and trendsetters are doing, which is changing food environments. Um, for far too long in healthcare and in our mentality uh, in the U.S., we have really thought about changing individual behaviors. We've really had this idea that eating poorly is often a matter of poor uh you know, willpower <laughs> and uh, that uh, if you just kind of educate people enough, uh, you know, sort of your kitchen, your rules, you can feed your, your kids right. And um, that that is pervasive in our culture. It's very much pervasive in healthcare. We have this idea that we really should be doing nutrition education in order to get people to uh, to eat healthy. And what is abundantly clear is that the most powerful lever on your health is your zip code, uh, where you live. And in Oakland, for example, like the zip code, the what is it? Uh, nine four uh, six oh uh, well we know that there's six oh three is probably these days that you know has uh, fifteen on average you have like a fifteen year life expectancy that's you know less li- uh, life expectancy I just really garbled that uh, you have fifteen <laughs> years less on average as an average life expectancy than you do in the hills. Um, Sorry, it's been a long day. Uh, so I, really what it is is about uh, changing uh, food environments and uh, starting with these very sort of powerful anchor institutions like healthcare and schools and so on, you really can, st- can start to do that. And, I, and when I asked you that question, it was just to sort of prod you a little bit, because in fact, I do think that you can start to change the whole system that way, but you can't by just telling people vote with your fork or, you know, Mm -hmm. change it with your fork because so many people actually don't have access to the food or the fork uh, to make the difference. And uh, so it's, it's having farmers collapse. I mean, this is the secret sauce and it's what I very much believe in. It's the work that I do. So does that, and and it does need to spread beyond farm to school and farm to hospital. It needs to involve absolutely every institution and every influential purchasing power that we have in this country. And somehow we have to do an end run around the middle uh, people who are, producing most of the junk that that ends up on our shelves so thank you so much what a what a great way to cap us off ben do you want to make one last comment before we close the program 
Um, we would love to thank some of our team and family from CAF that are here um, and some friends who came out to support as well. And, and thank you again to all of you for having <laughs> us here tonight. And I just want to say one more time thank you to our speakers who came from Sacramento and San Francisco and L.A. And Yes, thank you to all our panelists for such a thought-provoking discussion about how to create a healthier food system from the ground up. And now this program of the Commonwealth Club, celebrating over 100 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Gaveled in and out. <laughs>